Hey, everybody, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Every week, I get to talk to an incredible array of talented people about their passions and their professions. Um, if you're new here, thanks so much for joining me. A little bit of background about me. I've been covering the food, beverage, and hospitality scene for like 20 years. I know. I I look very young for my age, but um, I do it through a variety of outlets, print, online, TV, radio, podcast, social, and now YouTube. 20 years, listareyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you about every restaurant opening and food and wine promotion and happening around the city. Every Sunday, you tune in to Foodie and the Beast, DC's only food and wine radio variety show. We just celebrated 15 years on air. Um, and of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and Thread, and LinkedIn, and YouTube, and all the things. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, do it all. And yes, I am filming today in my... Um, very green plant-filled office, um, but I'm very excited to report that thanks to Greg Caston and the good people at Fish and Fire Group, I have a new residency. Um, my camera crew will be back and I'll be filming and recording this show at the point for the month of November. So I am both um, really grateful and very excited for that. So stay tuned. Um, and if you pay attention to my Insta feed and you've been listening to the show, you know that I had some like ridiculous travel for the month of September. Um, I had the incredible good fortune to travel through different areas of Italy a little bit of work, a little bit of play. Um, and you all heard, I was in Sardinia. I told you all about it. I was in Como. I told you all about that. But now I'm going to take you to the Milan portion of the trip. Now, listen, many Italians and Italophiles kind of disregard Milan because unlike Florence or Rome or Venice or Assisi, like, it's a newer city. The city is just not filled with the architectural and artistic artifacts that you find in these older city. It's modern. Um, but I'm here to tell you it is so fabulous. I just, I, it just, I just not, did not intend to love Milan as much as I did. So we wound up getting there pure serendipity a little less than a week before Milan Fashion Week. So the city was just buzzy with these tall, leggy creatures running all over the city to casting calls. It was insane people watching. Gucci, as in that Gucci, took over the city, especially the Briera district, which I will get into in a little bit. Um, but Gucci was just everywhere. And Ancora Gucci, Gucci Ancora, everything. And it was just so much fun to be surrounded by it. Um, we stayed at the Chateau Montfort, which is another relay Chateau property. Um, it's perfectly situated in the Montfort neighborhood. It's not far from the Duomo, which we got a fantastic tour of, along with um, the incredible opera house, La Scala. And uh, we are close to two, not one, but two of the famous food emporium Peck which we went to every day. Um, I had pizza at Giolina, which may be some of the best pizza I ever had, uh, present company excluded. Um, knife and fork ready, which I want to talk about with my guests later. Uh, Langosteria, which must go on your list if you're going to Milan. It's off the beaten path. It's in the nightlife district, which is not where tourists normally go. 
This restaurant is massive, but you really have no idea because it's lots of little rooms. It is completely filled with people. We got like the last reservation at like 11 o'clock at night and it was still happening and packed and amazing. Terrific seafood, terrific uh, pasta. It was just delicious and fun. The vibe was amazing. Um, I went to the Starbucks Reserva in Milan specifically so you don't have to, so you can all thank me later. Um, everybody tells you you have to go to the Starbucks in Milan, which sounds so ridiculous because the coffee is so amazing in Milan. But it is kind of like a Willy Wonka in the middle of the city. It's got this massive roasting contraption, and there are huge cylinders of coffee beans being carted all over the property, like above your head, under your feet. Anyway, it's ridiculous. And also I will say the food offerings are crazy. Like it does look like Willy Wonka, like pizza after pizza, after flatbread, after pizza and dessert after dessert after dessert. And it's massive. And there's a line to get in and I'm glad I went, but I'm not telling you, you have to go there. Um, I want to get back to Berea district for just a second it's like the village in New York, but in Italy, and it's just windy streets filled with shops and restaurants and people. And it was so alive and so fabulous. There's just so much going on there. The architecture of the city is just amazing. There's lots of green in the city, especially coming off of the buildings. If you've been to my Instagram, you've seen what I'm talking about. And then our last night at dinner was at the Michelin starred. I hope I pronounced it correctly. David will hit me on the head. Michael Schlau will be able to help me. Uh, La Chimia, which is an incredible tasting menu, a ridiculous wine cellar. Pro tip, ask for a tour of the wine cellar. And the 36 yolk pasta topped with freshly shaved truffles. My throat is still <clears throat> like closes up when I think about it because it was so rich, but it was so, um, so good. And it was an incredible way to end our trip. So that was Milan. That's the end of my trip. But you know what you do when you get back from an amazing trip? You get COVID. No, <laughs> I mean, we did get COVID. But what you really do is you plan your next trip. So I've got a couple in the works. Details on that coming soon. Okay, so normally I would fill you in also where I've been locally, but I don't want to make my guests wait much longer. But pure serendipity, I did wind up at one of their restaurants last night. I was at the so, so good Japanese restaurant of Michael Schlau Namako, which is just one of his nine concepts across DC and New England. And like all good restaurateurs, Michael began his career in the culinary industry as a dishwasher at the age of 14. And he has held every position in a restaurant but all before he went to culinary school. Now, I have had this James Beard award-winning chef and author on this show and Foodie and the Beast many times, and there's a reason. He has an incredible insight on the state of the industry, and I just love going down a rabbit hole with Michael, and you can bet we're going to do that today, but we're not gonna do it alone. In 2017, pastry chef extraordinaire Alex Levin joined Michael Schlau Group and not only took over the amazing pastry program, but is also the director of the Strategic Business Initiatives. That's a lot. Okay, let's get into it. Hi, guys. How are you? 
We're doing great. How are you? You're making good, me good, hungry. Good. I want some. I want some truffles right now. I know, right? You were there <laughs> at the perfect time. You picked. The I perfect had time. some truffles last night at uh, Namico, actually, with that like crack-like truffle sauce that you should just should keep a little, a little bit of it on the table, right? So that people we can should really probably like stop operating restaurants and just bottle that stuff. I think it's uh, so good. Probably do better. <laughs> Well, Michael, let's start with you. Like, I know you started in the industry at 14, but was it just like you needed some cash? Like, how'd you get into the industry? And like, what excited you about cooking? Well, I, I had started to like uh, cooking at a very early age. I think I was 10 years old when I would cook for my brothers and sisters. My mom had gone back to work and uh, it was it started out, I think, uh for the need of sustenance and I was hungry, but it turned right. out very quickly to be creative and I really enjoyed it. And I would just, I mean, my, uh, my go-to back then was omelets uh, filled with like the kitchen sink mm-hmm. and I would often get my brothers and sisters sick with my exper- experimentation. Um, I was known especially for my bologna and cream cheese omelets back then. And that, that sounds like a, that sounds like an excellent, excellent pairing. Yeah, uh, it was not mortadella and like robiola. It was no bologna, like Oscar Mayer. I hear where you're going. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, then my mom would come home. With, from... You could only work with what you have. Come on. And and my mom would come home from work and ask where my brother and sister were, and they were often getting sick in the bathroom for my <laughs> for my work. But uh, I knew it was what I, I you know very early. I I fell in love with it. I did get my first job, uh, really for money, but also it was uh, you know wanted some spending cash when I was fourteen and was a dishwasher, but was immediately bit by the bug. The interaction, not just between restaurant and guests, but also within the restaurant itself, the 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 harmony, the collaboration, the fighting, the passion, all the things that go on behind the scenes. I was just immediately drawn to it. And it was like a big family dinner every night and you're throwing a big party every night. And sometimes everybody danced beautifully together and other nights they fought like cats and dogs, but it was addictive and I was immediately drawn to it. But so, but when you were working, you, were you back of the house, front of the house? I know you started as a dishwasher, but did you do all the stations? Did it all. I mean, I was a dishwasher, bar back. Those were the first two jobs they sort of let me do. Then eventually uh, I was a bus boy and I would clear the tables. I stayed at this one restaurant all through high school. And, um, and so they eventually let me do just about every job there. I would be a host occasionally as I got older. I'll never forget, like, it was so exciting to me that at the end of the night, the bartenders would let me pour them a beer. Like, that was the coolest thing, I thought, was to be able to have the tap handle and, you know, pour them a beer at the end of the night as we were all cleaning up. But, no, I ended up being a, a waiter and a manager, a bartender. I cooked table side in a tuxedo. Once I'd gone to culinary school, I used to, that was the probably the most lucrative job I ever had. I made a lot of money being a table side captain. That was very good. But, you know, once I really just settled on being in the kitchen, then it was a path about trying to work for the best chefs that I could work for that would allow me in their kitchens and build a foundation, which was really something that my father had instilled in me that in order to have a long lasting career in anything for that matter, not doesn't matter what you choose, you have to have a foundation. And so um, I just would go work sometimes for free uh, for mm-hmm. the best chefs that would have me. But so was there, well, you bring me to a point that I'm very curious about when it comes to your culinary education. Were you like 
I want to be, I want to cook Italian. No, I want to cook French. No, I want to cook Japanese. No, I want to, I want to have a better understanding of Mexican. When you say foundation, yeah. was it the foundation of all cooking? And then you specialized over the years? Like, what did it's you a great want question. to do? You know, it, it started out, it's a great question. It started out with that. I thought I would be in the front of the house that I hope to own a restaurant. And the reason that I went to culinary school on first, the first blush was I went to culinary school because I wanted to know all the things that would happen in a kitchen, God forbid my chef quit or walked out on me. That was the original reason for me going. It wasn't that I went to culinary school to become a chef. I just wanted to learn everything there was to learn about the restaurant industry. And when I was in culinary school, that's when I realized I don't necessarily want to be in the front of the house. I, I like interacting with the guests. I love that part. I love doing media, television. I love all of those things. But the reason that I go to work every day was it turned out to be about being a chef and about the creativity, the practice, the habits, all those things. So when I said foundation, it was about good habits more than anything, building a foundation that was about cleanliness, organization, what kind of food you cook. I hate to say it this way. It almost doesn't matter if you don't have a good, good habits and if you don't have a good foundation to, to, to work off of. The other part is really about research, learning, passion, your own personal taste, you know, and, my tastes are varied, so I wanted to ultimately get involved in, in multiple things. But when I first started, the quote unquote best chefs back then, and I'm dating myself here a little bit, um, is the French chefs, you know, and then there was maybe the Swiss and the Germans. And Italian food was not looked upon as, and American food certainly wasn't looked upon as something of that could maybe command, whether it's a high price or the notion of, uh, a celebratory dinner or anything like that. And in our lifetime, obviously things have changed dramatically where all foods uh, and all cuisines have a place and can be, you know, lowbrow or highbrow. And so that, that was very interesting to me. Uh, well, in the last, I mean, not to jump ahead too much, but I mean, the yeah. change, I think of the financial structure of foods from anywhere around the world really in the last 15 years changed drastically. You know, like, I'll never forget when Scott Juneau and Wolfgang Puck opened up the source here in DC. And it was really like the first expensive Chinese food restaurant because we, unlike New York, New York had plenty of, in yeah, LA, lots of them, yeah, you know, that's right. yeah. but for nationally as a trend, you know, we'd sort of been sort of trained you don't pay a lot of money for certain cuisines. For tacos, for Mexican food. We would always exactly. think that, that was right. just street food. And it was our own, you know, I think, I don't want to say it was the ignorance of our country, but it was the youth of our country. And it was our youth when it comes to knowing good food from bad food. And I think about my own upbringing. I was, I was born in Brooklyn. I went to high school in New Jersey and went back to New York to work. And I think about, you know, what was when I didn't have any money, a slice of pizza was a great way to fill my stomach, you know, but I think about the one of the one of the restaurants that really changed my life was a restaurant called Sapore de Mare, which was out in East Hampton, Long Island, and it was one of the best restaurants I've ever worked in in my life. And it was Italian and it was a high end place that embodied the casualness of Italians, but also completely embodied and personified their incredible commitment to perfection and tradition, where it wasn't what I grew up with, which was, you know, I grew up with red sauce. I grew up with all the, the Sopranos dishes, you know, those kinds of things. You grew up with no A and no O, 
right? And, and I got yelled they at. They say mozzarella. In, in I got New yelled York, at from my. Jersey, yeah. They say mozzarella. <laughs> yeah, and it's got to be guttural. You know, it's got to sound like you're having a stomachache too. It's like mozzarella. You know, it's mozzarella. like it's not. Prosciutto. Yeah. So I got in trouble. It's a story I tell often. Uh, my boss, his name was Pino Luongo. He's still in the restaurant business in New York City. He was from Florence, and he was a magician. He was amazing. Taught me so much. But I would go to him, and I thought that I was trying to be cool to speak this this guy from Italy. What are you doing with the galama? What are you doing with the prosciutto? What are you doing with this? And he looked at me. Finally, one day, he puts down his name. He's like, "Why do you speak like this? What's wrong?" With you? <laughs> What's the matter with you? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, there's no G in calamari. It's C-A. It's not, it's not galama. It's right. like, well, that's the way I was taught. He goes, well, you were taught wrong. Right. And that, what I did in research, though, over the years, and I know you were just talking about your trips to Italy, um, is to learn about dialect, though, also, because just like in our country, uh, the further south you go in Italy, just like the further south you go in America, Words change, phrases change. And so if you were to learn the perfect, you know, sort of Queen's English in Rome at your, you know, at your English class and never spoke a word of it, and you get dropped off on your first trip to America and you're dropped off in, say, Mobile, Alabama, and somebody goes, hey, how you all doing? That doesn't sound like, hi, how are you? Sure. You know, it's, it changes. And so mozzarella and all those things, a lot of it was dialect and it got changed. It got changed as people came over you know, on the boat also, you know, as, mm-hmm. as migration happened and immigration, that was a lot of change. But the food, the beauty of the food, the integrity of the food, uh, you know, I love it all. But, you know, if you came to my house nine times out of 10, you probably have Italian food. Right. Well, because it's, there's everybody a simplicity. I mean, listen, everybody loves it. But there's, I hate to say simplicity because that makes it sound. It's not easy, plain, but- though. That's the difference. And that's what I say is yes. simple mm-hmm. is not synonymous with plain. A simple bowl, like you were just in Milan, a, a plate of risotto milanese, which is just a saffron risotto, right? Done by an expert is something that is ethereal. A you know uh, lambatina di, di vitello, a pounded out veal chop, milanese mm-hmm. style, with just a little salad on the side and a squeeze of lemon. When everything's so- in harmony and perfect, the food doesn't get any better than that. I feel the same way about Japanese food, where it's super simple, but it's not plain, and it's all about the integrity of the ingredients, and then well, also the expertise of the person making that's it. That's what I was just going to say. I think um, what we find more and more, and it took, it's like America, Americans had to do like this full circle thing to understand it, that the integrity of the product at the end of the day is the most important thing, right? It's like, everything. If you it's everything. have an amazing product, it doesn't need a lot of manipulation to be. No, and also, you know, you know, I think that I certainly and Alex, we both are have grown up in a time when. I'm gonna get to you, Alex. Don't worry. I'll I know. You. I'm not. It wasn't a lead in. I don't need him. I mean, you know, I'll speak the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> He'll just nod. You know, um, but uh, you know what's what's interesting. I think is that we all lived through a time when we would see these menus with, you know, laundry list of incre- ingredients. Um, you know, flavor on top of flavor on top of flavor on top of flavor. And you would say, well, that sounds really creative and interesting, I think. But does it taste good when it's put together? And I think one of the reasons I use this example all the time with those long laundry lists of ingredients, when you do a wine tasting, you don't pour a glass of 
Chardonnay on top of a glass of Sauvignon Blanc on top of some, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon on top of some Merlot on top of some Amarino, shake it all up and then drink it and say like, oh yeah, I taste all of those things in there. You can't, your palate just can't decipher that much. Right. And so when I think about things as simple as there's this pasta on our menu at every Alta Strada called spaghetti aliolio con pomodoro. It's just olive oil, garlic, tomato, and a little bit of crushed red pepper. Mm-hmm. It is the simplest dish. But it's so yummy. And it's just... How much salt? How much pepper? Did you cook the pasta for exactly four minutes and 40 seconds? Because that's what fettuccine takes. Did you cook the pasta and the sauce together? Mm-hmm. And there's no cheese in the dish. There's no basil in the dish. There's not. I mean, it's so simple. Mm-hmm. But if made properly and seasoned properly, it sings. And think about, you know, you ate a Namako last night. I hope, like, that the rice for the for the sushi was the right temperature. That's a- Well, you and I have talked about that. So I feel like, I, if, so people don't know. Let's talk about what your restaurants are. You sure. started in Boston with a restaurant. So let's just go through them very quickly and the, sure. the styles of food that you're serving in them. And then I'll hit up Alex. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the company has done a lot of different styles of cooking. It's always personal and it's always of, of community as well is this restaurant wanted in the neighborhood or in the city that we're trying to open it up in? And so I started, I started, you know, my career in New York and then I moved to Boston in the late nineties. And I had a series of restaurants there, including Radius, which was a very, you know, uh, you know, well-known, got- well-received. Mm-hmm. And it was an amazing place that lasted for 15 years until, uh, you know, we couldn't renew our lease any longer. Uh, but we did Via Mata, which was a very traditional Italian restaurant. And then we started, the first Tico was there. And just lots of fun restaurants. Great Bay was a seafood restaurant. So we built a series of restaurants there. And the first Alta Strada, which is your neighborhood Italian restaurant, was in Wellesley, which is just outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. We built one at Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. And we were looking to do Alta Strada maybe first here in D.C., but then an opportunity presented itself on 14th and you to do Tico. That was mm-hmm. what the, the landlord and developer wanted. And so we did Tico and we did great there. It opened about... 10 years ago, right. um, unfortunately, when COVID happened, Tico just wasn't, it just wasn't doing it. We did some, Alex had come up with some great ideas on how to drive some revenue during COVID, but it just wasn't clicking. And it certainly wasn't clicking as we started to emerge from COVID. So one of the things that I thought was, um, you know, what could we do with that space? We had built an Alta Strada on 5th and K, which is doing well. We had mm-hmm. built an Alta Strada out in Well, Mosaic. you guys, I mean, I got to say about Alta Strada on 5th and K, for people who don't know, that area, like when you opened, like you had like, Mandu? Like, even a park. I parked there, but it wasn't a parking lot. I mean, you know, it was no. just dirt. And yeah. you know, that whole area with um, uh, Capital Crossing, like that whole, like you, you held it's really it changed. until yeah, it really it's changed. where it is now. It's totally different. It's amazing. Yeah. And there were times where we struggled, where we weren't sure if we were going to stay or not. <laughs> you know, Danny Lee and, and Mandu is a good friend and our neighbor there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a lot of good restaurants now in the neighborhood. So it's good. And we built and a, a lot of residences. I mean, now you yes. have people all those there. new build, I, you know, office right. buildings. I don't know if office buildings help Correct. new buildings right. and that, that sort of changes the dynamic. You know what? I'm going to pop into Alex a little bit because I want to talk about how he joined you Um, because he's really changed from being, don't take this the wrong way, Alex, like just a pastry chef to, um, you know, making every ending sweet to really be taking over a part of the business of what you both are doing. And then I'd I'd really like to get into site selection and, and how you go about doing that, especially as we talk about like, 
both your altastradas um, sure. and how you changed Tico. So, hi, Alex. Hi. Thank you for having me on the show, too. Of course. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I moved to D.C. as part of the opening team of Osteria Marini, which mm -hmm. Michael White brought to the area. And it was just a few years later that Michael and I got together and started talking. We had early morning meetings together um, that were really more like sitting, you know, amongst, uh, for me at least, I felt like I was sitting with a new friend having mm -hmm. breakfast. And we would talk about our, our visions for what we believe restaurants should look like, um, what people that work in them, what they should feel, how they should, um, how they should act and react towards one another. And I really felt um, a strong camaraderie from the very beginning with Michael and the, um, and the, and the company that we uh, work in together and that we're building to get together. Um, and most of those uh, special moments were at the Rigsby at, you know, 745 in the morning, right before I'd have to run over to my shift and, and, and just get ready to set up for the day. Mm -hmm. uh, but nothing was really more thrilling for me than um, when I was able to see the letter in the mail from or the, the email from Michael inviting me to join Schlau Restaurant Group and work, you know, every day together. So, um, you know, it's interesting when you work at Schlau Restaurant Group, um, it's just a very different kind of place to work. Um, it is not a place where anybody feels um, like they're anywhere but home. That's been my experience. Mm. Uh, I feel like the people that I work with, I can pick up and speak to them about just about anything that's going on in my life. Um, I feel very strongly for the people that work, you know, at a level that might be below me, on my level, and of course, for the people that I look up to. And that's always been the case from the beginning of my career up until where we are today. Mm -hmm. uh, but Alex, how did you go? Hold on, Nikki. Alex, who do I make that check out to for all those kind words? I do know, I just really. To Alex Levin is at the Levin Foundation. Is there like Venmo yeah. happening here? What's going on? <laughs> was, no, was... Alex, but you, but you were doing, you were brought in initially, right, to like sort of take over the pastry program. I mean, when you took, when you were at Osteria Marini, I mean, you, you know, vaulted very quickly as a must eat, must try, must know. I mean, you, you vaulted very quickly to be well-known in the city among, you know, the chef literati that were here. Um, Indeed. And so, like, what, what, what ended up, you know, the conversations began because um, there are always a lot of different projects that uh, Michael and, and our group, you know, become involved with. And, you know, it turns out that the project that we thought I was going to be involved with kind of morphed into something else. Um, mm -hmm. And that something else made me the pastry chef of all of the, the restaurants that were in the group. Um, and I remember coming in and, you know, there hadn't been a pastry chef working in the group for almost, what, what was it, Michael, 18 months, two years at that point? Mm, a little less than that, but yeah, it had been some time. It had been a, a little over a year. And what Alex is not uh, also giving himself credit for that I will tell you, uh, he's probably too... Uh, too shy to say it about himself mm -hmm. is I, I immediately not only loved him and his personality and his, his, his approach to work, but I loved what he made. He mm. is super talented and True. he is also one of the rare chefs, pastry chefs that I've ever met that while we all want our products to be perfect the first time we ever make it, he's always tinkering, 
twisting things, making it better, making it better, and is open to people saying, you know, I think that this is great. Can you even push it to, to more? Alex now makes, I think, some, he always did, but I think he's even elevated what I already found to be an amazing product. And so mm -hmm. what, and I don't want to ruin the story here, but aside from this, this incredible talent about pastry is that Alex also showed incredible, you know, proclivity to uh, being really smart about business and numbers and spreadsheets. He's got a mathematics degree from Yale, you know, and I don't I mean, know. I was going to say, he did yeah. go to Yale. <laughs> He's really smart. And so we about wanted, getting in, let's be real. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that, <laughs> that we were true. We, we wanted to make sure that we were, we were uh, able to fully utilize all of Alex's talents and, you know, his ability to, do a pop-up bakery out of nowhere and like $10,000 later, you're like, how did you do that, Alex? And when the people get the product, they're like, holy crap, this is delicious. And so right. one of the things uh, I'm here in DC this week, Alex and I are gonna talk about and work on is how to continue to do more of that, this notion of appreciative inquiry, like what do we do well as a company and mm -hmm. how do we do more of that? One of the things that Alex started to mention that I wanna reiterate is that our collective attitude is nobody works for us. We work together, We who works with us? And it's a different right. approach. It's a, just a different well, approach. So let's, let's start on there with it because hospitality is very important to your restaurant group. You have a certain level that you both expect from those who join you. Um, pandemic, we are post pandemic now, right? We, we had a couple, it's been tough. And the industry went through this real pendulum swing, right? Like during the beginning of the pandemic, support the rest, like everybody was like, yes, support your restaurants, give extra tips, do all the things to like this other pendulum swing where we are now, where yeah. restaurants are still, they're still like, you're still catching up. There's still struggles, 100%. right? Staffing it, it is still never be, it, it might never be the same, right? Right. But right. since we know, we here's what I feel like we learned. I mean, I don't own a restaurant, obviously, but from what who I talked to, what I've learned, mm -hmm. what we all saw three years ago was that the, the foundation wasn't there, that the structure needed to be fixed in order to sustain, maintain, survive, and then thrive, right? So we all sort of talked about that in the beginning, right? I had, I think I had you guys on a show. Like I talked to everybody about, we need to do changes, we need to change. But everybody was so like trying to cover their ass and pay their bills and get shit done that now we're here. And we're in this place where a lot of people are very busy, but they're, but nothing has changed. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're still struggling and we're struggling for staff and, and there's a struggle out there. And the expectation that the consumer understands that struggle is gone. The consumer doesn't care. Well, that's true. There was a there was definitely a free pass for a little while. Mm -hmm. That free pass. Definitely gone. But I'm going to respectfully disagree that nothing's changed. I, I think okay. jump in. We've changed as a company. Um, we're smarter. We're more nimble. We communicate better. Um, we, we've constantly, I think this is, I'd like to give our company some credit in that I think we always did this, but we've done it more so since COVID. Um, 
we, some of it, you know, some of it I'm not happy about, like, I wish we were open more hours, you know, mm -hmm. but you just can't be because you have to, again, be nimble and smart about how the labor model works. And that's a big thing that Alex jumps in on in our company. He gets very involved in that as to where can we become of, you know, equal, if not more value to our, to our neighborhood, to our community, because we do provide a service and an experience, but mm -hmm. at the same time, how do we make sure that with the limited amount of hours we're, we're operating, that we're making money? Sure. That we, that we can just well, so Alex, how do you do that? Like in today's, given the struggle still for staff, how do you do that? I mean, sometimes Nikki, it's literally going through for three days straight and calling, you know, 200 people on the phone and screening them so that the rest of my team can have a meaningful interview with one or two people and hope that from doing that, you know, two, three, four days a week that we can find the right person and bring them on and get them to join our, our team. And that is like one of the things that I never really had to do before. We used to put up a very simple ad saying, hey, we're hiring chefs, we're hiring servers, and we'd get 25 people applying for, you know, mm. you know, for the position. And they would show up for the interview. And they now, would show up. Now, they, now, now we have to approach them. We have to text them. We have to email them. We have to leave voice messages. And but, really but, show what I wanna, but Alex, that's the negative part of it, right? Which is we're dealing as a, as a community, as an industry, we're dealing with this. Right. We're not the only industry to deal with this. Every industry, there is a... But Michael, what I was also going to say, though, is that when you do find that right person, it makes it all worth it. You know, mm. we just recently hired a chef at Alta Strada Mosaic that took a while to find. And I already we just had him on Foodie and the Beast. And you had him on your show. Yeah, Foodie and the Beast. Right. So Matt um, right away has impressed us. Um, he's working very hard. He's working very well with the team. Um, he understands our philosophies and he's really joined forces with us in a way that we're really excited about for the future. So part yeah. of that, where, but what I was going to say about that is that, you know, finding the person is one thing. How do you retain them is the other thing. And so we, we have seen for years and years and years now, people saying, well, I'm going to go down the street for one extra dollar. So where, again, where I think change has occurred for us and it may have been slow and then sped up during COVID, you know, I say ad nauseum, we have to provide a learning environment in our in our restaurants. Whether you're the chef, the GM, or a busboy, if you are in a learning environment, you're more and in a pleasant learning environment. Obviously, mm -hmm. you are more apt to stay if you feel like you're getting something beyond tips or a wage. Um, and you know, listen, it's a whole other conversation that we don't want to talk about today. We can spend another day on it. But DC makes it harder and harder to do business here. You know, the changes to the 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 the, the uh, wages here it, it changes things well actually can we so listen i kind of get into it with almost every sure. restaurateur who comes on sure. they vote the people voted for it right because they were duped the people, right? the people were duped the by the way the ballot was written i mean it was done twice they voted for it twice and yep there were there was always that like small peanut gallery in the industry that was like over here like no, 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 we want it. Whereas most in the industry were like, no, we don't, we don't. But it still got through. So can you, how does it affect both of you in the business? Like what sure. is it that is so affecting two, you? So, so number one, if you were to ask anybody in the world, 
do you think that servers should make a fair living wage? The answer is absolutely, 100% yes. What they leave out is that when you have a tip credit situation like we have in Boston, which makes it much more you know, easy to do business, is that let's just say there's a snowstorm and nobody comes in today. If the, if the minimum tip credit wage was, I'm making up the number, $5.25 that year, and it snows and nobody comes into the restaurant, <clears throat> they don't make five twenty-five. You are, you are mandated to make up the difference to make sure that they at least get minimum wage. Right. Now what is going to happen is not only will they get minimum wage, that minimum wage just continues to go up to 15, 16, who knows where the top will end. Right. But they get that and their tips on top of it. So waiters in our restaurants make wonderful livings. They make a lot of money and they get their tips. And what's going to end up happening is one of two things will happen in D.C. proper. You will end up with large chain restaurants only who mm -hmm. have different abilities and different buying power. And that's how they'll make up the difference on the labor. But right now, labor and rent are our two highest costs. Not food anymore, even though food's very, very expensive. But labor and rent are what are the killers of our business right well, now. Well, can we talk about rent? Because I've sure. had, like, I had um, John Esadorian on the show a while back. And I love John. And he's a he's gossip. Great. We dig in deep on all the things that are happening in the city. It's always fun. But I sort of went to him in the interview and said, who makes up these numbers? Like the, the, it's so, the per square foot is so astronomical. It doesn't, it's, it's a, now it's becoming a detriment to 100%. the state. Do you only want trains? I literally said that, Tim. I was like, how is the independent retailer and restaurateur supposed to open up in these spaces? I had two issues. That's I was like, first impossible. of all, you keep making these massive spaces in these new buildings. Like, where's the little, you know, 40 seat restaurant? Where's the little like salt yep. and sundry kind of space? You know, where are these spaces that independent retailers and restaurateurs can get into, pay their people and make a living? Um, you know. And so, yes. So, I mean, it, it, and, and John's job, and I love John, don't get me wrong. I've known him for a long, long time. And he's one of my favorite people. He's great. But, but I will often say, and often to deaf ears, you as the developer and you as the real estate uh, broker, what is your goal here? I remember mm -hmm. uh, when, you know, we were very close and still are with Robin Mosley when she was at JVG. And mm -hmm. Robin would say, my job is to help create communities, to help create neighborhoods. And if all I do is put on a Starbucks and a Bank of America and a cheesecake factory in there, then every neighborhood is going to look exactly the same and they're not going to have any difference. So I try to, she would say, I try to, you know, balance it out so that the landlord gets some good, what they'll call AAA credit, you know, chains mm -hmm. and then have room for the places that like you spoke about are 40 seat, you know, salt and sundry kinds of places or small mm -hmm. retail or small restaurant tour. The reality is, is that if they continue to charge what they are charging, you will see more and more vacancies or more and more chains. The, the small operator cannot afford the rents. And there's these benchmarks um, that we feel are important to hit when it comes to things like occupancy costs. And when you start to go all over occupancy costs of blank, that means that you're not making as much money on the bottom line. You can't pay sure. back your investor or your bank or your staff. And so um, there is a number that we are disciplined about, and it's why you don't see us in more restaurants. We, it's not that the phone doesn't ring and people say, hey, we want you in such and such. Oh, space. no, I know that. 
Right. But I'm not paying $100 a foot to be in a place. If you do, you have to do $1,500 a square foot in gross revenue. And that is an extraordinary amount of money per square foot. So right. what the landlords in, I'm going to take New York City out of the equation for a second because their density of population, it's an unfair. It's totally different. Right. Right. But anywhere else in the world, if you are doing, you know, $750 to $1,000 a square foot gross mm. revenue, you really can't afford much more than $40, $45 a foot in rent. And landlords don't want to hear that. And then a landlord now wants on top of it. And this wasn't the way it was when I first started in the business. A landlord now wants you to pay their common area maintenance charges. So if they have to remove snow, they want you to pay for it. They want you to pay for their real estate taxes. That wasn't the case when I got into the business. Occupancy costs, when I got into the business, we tried never to go over 5%. Now we try not to go over 8%. But you start to creep into 9 10 12%. Unless you've got a restaurant that's you know doing tens of millions of dollars, the margins are just very, very slim. That being said, we still are interested in doing more and more business. And you were saying at the beginning of the show about site selection. It's hard here in DC because the good sites, quote unquote, keep changing every time a new neighborhood opens up. So 14th and U was considered an amazing location 10 years ago and then Shaw opens up and then Navy Yard opens up bigger. Then the wharf opens up and we're sort of a little nomadic in where we go. And so yeah, but don't you think here's what I think is interesting. And I'm very curious to what how you both sure. look at this. So 14th Street. Yes. When you open on 14th Street, you were one of the originals on 14th Street. You were in a new building. I mean, you you and 14th Street was on fire. But there yep. was incredible investment from the city as well as, you know, uh, real estate buildings, et cetera, to create that excitement around 14th Street. Now, listen, other neighborhoods were opening, you know, Union Market, like every money was being invested. The breadth and depth of the city was changing drastically because now there's way more people who can live here, right? Because there's yeah. way more residences, which now yeah. means we have lots more real estate that we didn't have in the past. So, but... It seems like they invest all this money in an area and then they're like, okay, we built it, we're done. And I'm sort uh, of like- I couldn't agree more. I couldn't I mean, agree more. Why would they, I always use Union Station as my, like my messaging. When I first yeah. moved here in the nineties, they had just it redone was cool. Union Station. It was fabulous. They yeah. invested all this money, it was shiny and pretty, every event was there, the whole thing. And then like 10 years later, Nikki, sometimes I think the city thinks that there's more people that live in Washington, D.C. than actually do. Okay. But I really still, believe they that. have to maintain things. Like, 14th Street should be maintained. It has to be nurtured. You can't just plant the seeds and water it and then don't come back to it. Do well, you know especially if you, well, if you stop watering it. It's going to die. Gonna die. Yes. And so, I, you know, I'm not here to lambase 14th Street because there's there are success no, stories either. for sure. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of people closing where we are and mm -hmm. it is not being maintained. And it, that part is very, very difficult to watch, especially when you've invested millions of dollars in a location that you don't own, you're in somebody else's building and you put up millions right. of dollars. Your expectation is that your municipality, your city, wherever you live in this country, it doesn't matter. Your expectation is, is that you know, you've been sold a certain bill of goods and that 
the city will, not just the city, but your neighbor, everybody will keep it going and keep it exciting. And so it feels like a little bit in DC, um, and I won't say that this is you know across the board, but there's a little tiny taste that people say, you know, okay, well, I went there a bunch of times, now I'm gonna go to the, what's new and what's next. And I think that's not just cities, I think that's also life in general with everything being this sort of a lot of instant gratification, scrolling through Instagram, scrolling through X, you know, all these things, it's speed, speed, speed. Me personally, when I find a restaurant or a business that I love, uh, somebody that cuts my hair, whatever, I keep going back to the same places. Mm -hmm. I like the notion of being a regular someplace. I like the tradition. I love new restaurants too and new experiences. Don't get me wrong, that's how we learn. But there's something about going back to that old place that you just love that mm -hmm. I enjoy that. And so we'll keep building restaurants, but it is, I, I don't want to pretend like it's not difficult. It is. Everything's more expensive. And yet there is a, a ceiling as to how much money you can charge for food. And we don't want to be deemed, you know, overtly expensive. We want to feel like we're a great value for people, people that work with us. We hope that we bring value to their lives as well. But it does become more and more difficult. That doesn't mean we're going to stop. You know, that's what the restaurant right. business industry is. I mean, when you think about COVID and how the, the restaurant industry reacted, mm -hmm. I mean, who's the first ones that are always asked to come to somebody's aid? If there's, look, I mean, you want to talk about the, the ultimate, look at Jose, Jose Andreas's work that he does. I know. But, but on a smaller level, every restaurant is a mini World Central Kitchen. You know, we're always doing charity events. We're always bringing, and when COVID hit, if there was ever an industry that was going to be creative and figure a way out of it. Now, granted, government helped us dramatically there. We can't, mm -hmm. you know, we can't argue that without government support, a lot more restaurants would have gone out of business. Oh, without and a so doubt. We're, we're very, very grateful for that. And so, mm -hmm. while yeah, there's, there's landlords that might charge a lot of money or not wanted to work with us the way that other landlords wanted to work with us. Overall, it comes out in the wash and we love what we do. Um, mm -hmm. we're, we've, I, I mean, I don't wanna speak for Alex. I think he feels this way. We're grateful that we found careers where we don't feel like we go to work. It's our passion. Um, mm -hmm. and, and for me, it was, a, for me mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a career change. I was doing the nine to five kind of job working you know, and in, in, in investments and in, in um, consulting and, you know, I didn't love it. I, 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 I loved parts of it. I loved being able to take a two week vacation in August, but all the wrong things, you know, and the second that I applied to go to culinary school to the Culinary Institute of America, I knew I made the right decision to do that. Not so much because of the school, but because of the opportunities to then work with Noah Carroll at Cafe Balud and Johnny Zini and Jean Georges and, mm -hmm ultimately to be able to go and move to Washington, D.C. and work at Osteria Marini as a pastry chef in just a couple of years. So it was because of those things that, um, you know, that every one of those decisions to me felt like the right decision. I never felt like I was going backwards, but always forwards. Mm -hmm. um, and the learning for me in those experiences also taught me that learning never, ever ends. Like mm -hmm. we're That's always true. continuing to improve ourselves, improve our knowledge, um, improve how we run our restaurants, make, making our restaurants um, as profitable as they can be under the circumstances that they're in. And that's really what, yeah. Well, I mean, actually, I mean, if I can jump in on that, I, I think, Alex, what you say is so important there. And I've certainly said this on this show before. There are some restaurateurs 
who were very successful and, uh, you know, were kind of angry that they're not still successful, but they did. I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm just talking about they had their concept. They were killing it. And then, you know, now they're not. And they're like, you know, they're kind of bitchy about it. And I'm like, or you maybe you didn't evolve. Like, I know I can't tell you, like, in my consulting business, like, I'd be like, it's time to move this dish off the menu. And somebody was like, no, 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 it's a favorite. If I take it off, they'll go crazy. And I was like, or they'll try something new, like, or they can special order it. Or, you know what I mean? Like, maybe it is time to retire it and bring it back to special. You know what I mean? Like, you have to stay fresh in this industry. No different than the movie industry, the fashion industry, even being a doctor. If you don't stay up to date with the newest techniques, you're not providing what's best for your patients. So it's- I I couldn't agree more, yeah. All over. It, it's so true. And I mean, we, it's one of the reasons we travel, uh, you know, as a, a, you know, the, the company, when I think about what do I want us to do, I want us to always be evolving, putting the very best that we know how to do on the table. But it's not just about the food. It's about the experience. But what we will agree, again, when I go back to your statement about things changing, I would say that maybe even pre-pandemic, we were starting to talk like this. And in conversations, Pre-pandemic, the word culture was used in every single meeting that we attended, whether we were using it or somebody in our group was using it. But the word culture during the pandemic, it was impossible to create culture when people were at home and not, you know, interacting Mm -hmm. the way we interact today. But one of the things that we thought about was how can we continue to evolve? How can we continue to not only learn, but most importantly, for both the staff the, the team members on the staff and also for our guests is how can we provide a better experience? And that word experience is now sort of, at least in our industry, is sitting side by side with the word culture. And okay. when people come in, they just want to have a great time. They're, they're sick of sitting home. And the other thing I would say is this, Nikki, and uh, is I never use as an example, when I talk about an experience, that experience for me needs to be in person. Um, as much as possible, even though this is great and it feels like I'm talking to you, but I know you well and I know Alex obviously well, so it feels good, but it's not the same as if we were sitting in a room sharing a plate of pasta together or a glass of Mm -hmm. wine together. And so I think about the success and how I never pre-COVID ever used delivery services, never did it. If I was hungry, I cooked, or if I was hungry, I went out. Those were my two choices. Right. Maybe I'd get... Chinese food delivered when I was with my mom or something like that. But now I'm like scrolling, like, oh, what about this place? I want to try that place. And I'll get something. And I'm sitting there in my sweatpants eating Thai food, thinking this is really delicious. There's no experience attached to it. I mean, listen, I have to end the show because we only have an hour, but I will echo that. Um, I did not grow up in a household where we ordered in and um, except for like pizza, like on Saturday nights when my parents went into the city, um, you know, we were just alone in the house. But actually, that is when I started cooking, much like you. I mean, I started cooking and playing restaurant with, you know, my best friend when we were like eight and we would serve our siblings like whatever we wanted to cook. Nobody got sick, though. but um, but we did do that. And um, so I I feel very kindred with you on that. I mean, I didn't wind up in the kitchen. I wound up here. Um, But there's so much going on in this industry. There's so many layers. 
And I, I always think about the people who are the diners, right? Like, especially the rabid diners, like the ones who just love the industry so much. But they, like, I think of my parents. My parents are rabid diners, right? Like, they eat everywhere. And they tell you about every menu and every chef and everything. But they have no idea how the business works. None. And it always fascinates me that they really just, they don't know what they don't know. And I guess they're not supposed to know, you know, but I think a little education helps when you go, you should be an educated consumer no matter where you go. But you a know? little mystery is fun too. Like how do they get that to come out and look so good? How come my right. food doesn't look like when I'm at home? So exactly. that's part of the fun too. Just being in the room and the experience of, of being in that special space, mm -hmm. you know, like you're sitting in Namaco and you're in the room with the right music and, you know, listening to the um, conversations that you're having with your friends and enjoying delicious food. Yeah. And it is delicious. We had a great meal last night. Derek is coming. I'm glad you enjoyed I'm sorry that I missed you by a day. That's okay. I'll be there tonight. I'll be there later. Okay. It was great. That um, The silken tofu in the miso soup is like, it's like, uh, it's insane. It's so good. It really Thank is you. killer. So Thank anyway, you. all right. Please Thank tell you. everybody where they can find you both. Alex, where can we find you on Insta? So you can find me on Instagram. Chef Alex Levin is my Instagram handle. Um, for our restaurants as well, uh, you can find us at, at Namaco DC, at Altastrada underscore DC, at Altastrada VA, at Altastrada Fox, and at Altastrada Wellesley. Okay. Michael, I know I'm missing a couple of things, but maybe you Michael, can. Michael, where can we find you? So I'm at my name on everything. I'm at Michael Schlau, Instagram, Facebook, you know, whatever you want to find me on. And right. um, you find me in the restaurants, most importantly. That's where I like to hang out and be. And uh, it's what got me in it in the first place and what keeps me coming back every day. Great. Well, I love it. I love this candid conversation. Um, as I said in the beginning of the show, I mean, we could always go down a rabbit hole together, right? Because always. there's so many layers. We didn't even get to Italy. We got so much to talk about with Italy. You and I will talk about that offline. Line. All right. Okay. So I want to thank you all for joining me today on this episode you, of yeah. Industry Night. Um, for those of you who don't know, you can find me on all your uh, podcast platforms. Follow me at NYCCI, N-E-L-L-I-S, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Watch this show, please, on YouTube. Comment, add questions, subscribe, do all the things. There is so much going on out there in the world, but especially in the D.C. area. Check out the list, areyouonit.com, for not only everything you heard here, but all the other incredible things happening around the D.C. metro area. Um, be safe out there and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.